Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by my colleague, Todd Bellamere, and our guest, Beth Holmes, Head of Network Development at Hint Health. Hint Health is a technology company that enables direct primary care. I've personally been fascinated with DPC for years. From my days back at GE Healthcare when I was marketing electronic medical record software, to my time at Aetna and CVS, where we were exploring all sorts of new models to deliver better care at a lower cost. So I think we had a lot to talk about today. So Todd, great as always to have you here. Thank you for having me. Always happy to be here. Good to see you come all the way down the hall. Thank you. We're actually in office again today. <laughs> and Beth, thanks for joining us. We're so excited to learn more about direct primary care. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you guys today. Okay, so let's get this started and keep it simple for our audience. You know, there are a lot of people out there who've never heard of direct primary care. What is it? Well, direct primary care is a model in which doctors are working with their patients on a subscription basis instead of on a fee-for-service basis. So what that means is typically either a patient or their employer pays the doctor a monthly fee for all services that doctor would provide. Um, And the feeling that it kind of feels like when a patient works with a direct primary care doctor is like having an old-timey family doctor. So it's like having someone who will know you and answer your calls and kind of really be there for you instead of having to interact with, um, you know, a doctor inside of a system that's really hard to get in touch with. So shouldn't my doctor be doing all that for me anyways? Like full disclosure, I'm not part of a direct primary care practice today. I see my own doctor part of fee-for-service. He's part of a big facility network here in the greater Boston area. So, but shouldn't he just be doing everything that you just said for me as part of that? I think he should be, and he probably wants to be. But the reality is that most doctors working in the fee-for-service system have a huge patient panel. So it's really hard to get into the access them. Sometimes you're waiting weeks or months even to go get in to see them. Um, and then when you do go in, visits are really short. So uh, doctors and other clinicians have a really, really short amount of time that they have to see their patients. So they don't have time to really get into knowing you, who you are, and working with you proactively on their health. And that's something that DPCs do have. They carry smaller patient panels. um, And because they're not paid on a fee-for-service basis, they can manage their time in kind of around the way that patients need their care. So I think when when I was sort of looking into this and and thinking about this, what it made me think of is the amount of extra stuff that a fee-for-service physician has to go through just to work in their practice, whether it's the rules about referrals or or working through, you know, a, a schedule of different charges that they have to kind of look through and, and even just the incentivization of that physician on how they make money. And I, I think that's the the thing that clicked for me when I was trying to think of why it might may be better in a, a DPC model. It really thinks it made me think more of the value-based care type settings where it's a set fee and the physicians are paid a set fee no matter what happens. So they are then incentivized to 
maybe not order a bunch of tests that aren't needed as opposed to someone who is incentivized to do so. And I think maybe that comes into play, or at least that that's when you think about all the things that that come along with being in a fee-for-service model, like that sort of thing is something that, that makes me think, oh, well, maybe we should think more about DPC. But then it starts thinking about, well, what are the fees associated? And and for me, like when I first read about it, I was like, oh, this is concierge care. And I was curious, is there, do you make a distinction between DPC directly or and concierge care? Yeah. So going back to your initial point, I think you're absolutely right. We've been trying to figure out how to pay particularly primary care doctors outside of the fee-for-service system for a long time. So from capitation in the 90s to value-based care today, it's like, how can we pay them to, you know, take care of, of people and kind of work with them through health issues in a way that doesn't involve seven-minute in-office visits? So direct primary care absolutely aligns with that kind of long line of thinking. Um, to your question about how much it typically costs, there is a really important distinction between concierge care and direct primary care. Uh, concierge care typically is a fee on top of fee-for-service uh, payments so that your doctors are able to kind of maybe deliver a more high-end experience or take on fewer patients, but they're still billing your insurance um, and typically billing a pretty hefty fee on top of that. Direct primary care on average um, kind of averages a monthly price in the 70s. So it's changed, but it's usually 70 to $75 a month. Uh, which is a lot more affordable than something that might be a couple hundred or a couple thousand um, in the concierge model. Is that cost per person, per family? So I've got four kids and it's my wife. So that's a family of six. That's probably, I'm, I'm clearly more expensive than someone in their 20s who's not married, right? So how does that 70 cost work out? It, usually it's per person, but that's an adult price. So a lot of DPCs will have a family price and say, you know, the first adult is 70, the next one is at maybe 65 and kids are 30 um, or do a family bundle. So if you are signing up as a family, it can be more uh, accessible if you're all in the, kind of this with the same doctor who can offer discounts. But yeah, it is typically more than people are used to spending for primary care. And I think that's a function of us really defunding primary care over the years and a lot more healthcare dollars going into specialty care and hospital care. Um, and if you look at the kind of what America spends for primary care versus other OECD countries, we're spending a lot less on primary care. If you look at kind of the overall dollar we're spending, we're spending a lot more and our outcomes are a lot worse. And I think those are just absolutely tied together. We need to think about how we can reinvest in primary care uh, to kind of influence everything that happens downstream. Got it. That that makes sense. So how does this, my apologies for getting into kind of the weeds, but it's, it's interesting to me here to understand it. So hopefully I only have to see my primary care physician and I never want to actually have to go see a specialist or God forbid, go to a hospital. So even if I'm okay paying this additional money for direct primary care, because that's outside of my insurance, if I understand you correctly, do I also need to carry health insurance in addition for all that other stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So most people kind of year to year are going to be healthy. They're only going to need to see their primary care doctor. They, you know, they might need an annual physical or they might have small things that come up, but you do absolutely need 
coverage for unexpected events, whether it's accidents or more serious diseases when you need to see specialists or or go to a facility. So, uh, you know, there are, you said, you know, you direct primary care might not be part of your insurance. That's not true for everyone. Um, there, you know, when we look at our data about half of the lives at direct primary care practices who use our technology are employer-sponsored lives. So employers are finding ways to pair together direct primary care and the rest of the benefits that they're offering their employees. That's good. I think maybe we should take a quick pause here and kind of have you clarify just for everybody who Hint Health is, because I don't want people to think that Hint Health <laughs> is providing direct primary care. So what's Hint Health and how do you play in this broader ecosystem? Yeah. So Hint Health is a, a direct primary care company. We have technology that helps direct primary care practices manage their eligibility and enrollment uh, because they're just on a completely different you know, membership and billing basis than doctors who are working in the fee-for-service system and have to process claims. DPCs don't typically submit claims, so they don't need a technology that can help them do that, but they do need technology that helps them manage their memberships. So you're basically a back office provider for a direct primary care. That's right. That's right. Um, and we also have um, a, a network of direct primary care practices that large employers can work with so that they can kind of have that kind of health insurance network experience rather than having to work directly with the you know many different um, direct primary care practices in their communities, especially when they're larger and more spread out. And that's called Hint Connect. I think that's really – so it's almost like you guys are the analog to the revenue cycle management uh, programs that like a fee-for-service provider might use and that generates the claims, sends it to a clearinghouse and so on. That's That really gets into the things that I do here is is work through medical claims data to understand outcomes and, and, and behaviors and trends and things like that. So that's super interesting. In, in terms of working with – you had mentioned 51% of, of the – the programs for DPC is sponsored by employers. And you just mentioned, can you talk a little bit more about that network? So you guys partner with employers to work with, to kind of build out what that might look like. And I forget the percentage, forgive me, but there was a certain percentage or most of the the uh, employers have less than 10 employees. Yeah. Yeah. So your DPC started more as a retail movement. So doctors working directly with patients, kind of like a direct to consumer model. But as more people found out about DPC and employers learned about DPC, they wanted to start offering it to their employees because it's a really differentiated benefit. It's a really uh, kind of strong front door into the healthcare system. And so, yes, we're seeing 51% of uh, the lives that flow through Hint Health technology are employer sponsored in the DPC model. And then you're right. A lot of those are coming from really, really small employers. Uh, that you know, I think we think part of that is because they, you know, it's easier for small employers to make really big benefit changes. I mean, changing people's primary care is huge for people who do have primary care doctors. They typically really like them, uh, and so you know, making this change is is big for employers, and it's been confusing for employers about how to fit direct primary care into the rest of their benefit structure because it's not part of, you know, people are used to being like, I work with this one health insurer and they do everything. They do my network and my plan design and my, the administration and the claims payment and reporting. And 
it's all in one. And DPC right now is standalone. So it's taken employers who are really willing to kind of go outside the mold and do something else. Uh, usually it's employers who are really, you know, have long-term employees and really care about their health and want to see changes in long-term health outcomes that are really interested in DPC. And I don't know if I answered your question, so you can tell me if you have follow-up there. No, I, I think it was much more along the lines of, of how those employers get involved with it. And, and you know, sometimes I, at first I was thinking it's, it's probably, and I don't want to say an easier way, but it is a way for them to comply with laws that in some states that say, you know, employers over a certain size have to offer some kind of insurance plan. So uh, it's just super interesting. And it's, it's something that I had not really thought through before when looking at, you know, volumes of patients by insurance providers and there there's a gap there and, you know, whether it be a couple hundred thousand or, you know, a million patients or so, that still can be significant, especially when you're looking at where patients start their healthcare journey, which typically would be in the primary care space. Yeah. And I think another reason that employers really love direct primary care is that is the access of it. So, you know, a typical member journey in direct primary care is you sign up with a DPC and you go in and you have your first in-person appointment with a doctor. And whereas an initial visit for a fee-for-service uh, doctor might be max 35 minutes, I think that's the maximum you can bill for. With a DPC, you're typically looking at about an hour. So they're really getting to know you and they're getting to know kind of your health problems, but also who you are because your health problems don't exist in a vacuum. It, it's about where you live, who your family is, what the, your job is, what, you know, the things that worry you, your, your mental health as well as your physical health. So they're really getting to know you. And then once they know you, it's a lot easier to provide uh, virtual care. So, so much of DPC is done virtually, and that's not just video visits, that's phone calls, texts, emails, just like, hey, doc, had this happen, can you help? And those are the types of encounters that fee-for-service docs don't get paid for, so they're not doing them uh, because nobody wants to work for free, uh, but with DPCs, with that's covered in the membership fee. And so for employers, that means people can stay at work. It means they have access after hours. So they're, you know, consulting with their PCP instead of going to the ER or going to an urgent care. Um, and that becomes really good for both employees' health and the employer's bottom line. So you said earlier that 51% of the lives passing through the Hint OS or your Hint Health system are come from employers. How do the other 49% of people who aren't getting it through their employers get into direct primary care? Well, they're meeting direct primary cares in their community and they're paying for it themselves out of their pockets. They're saying, this is a service that I need and it's worth it to me to have this, this kind of out-of-pocket payment. Okay. So it's really just individuals like regular consumer shopping. It's like, instead of going off and buying a new microwave, I'm going to go off and I'm going to find myself a direct primary care, and I'm going to subscribe on my own. Yeah, that's right. All right. That's actually a lot higher than I would have expected you to say. Uh, because when I think about getting my primary care, my medical, I always think my employer, right? And I think most people think about their employer. And so to think about that, you're almost half of yours is coming directly from consumer shopping is really an interesting commentary on healthcare and how it fits in. Yeah. Well, I think you know, I I have worked in the Massachusetts market before. I'm in California now. And I think that the way we experience healthcare in Massachusetts, which has really, really high insurance coverage, is not the way that everybody else in the United States is experiencing their kind of healthcare. And I think there are people 
in a lot of different buckets. And, you know, I think over 10% of Americans now are uninsured. So there are a lot of people out there who aren't, don't have insurance um, and they're figuring out how do I, you know, get the most bang for my buck when engaging with the healthcare system and having an affordable primary care doctor who can help you both with your healthcare problems, but also help you navigate the rest of the healthcare system is something that's very valuable for a lot of people. Uh, another bucket of people is are those who have very uh, high deductibles or even PPO plans that are technically not high deductible plans, but have really, really big out-of-pocket costs. You know, medical debt is the number one cause of, of bankruptcies. People even people who are getting employer-sponsored coverage, who are paying tens of thousands of dollars a year for their premiums, have out-of-pocket costs that can be really unaffordable. If you're working minimum wage or have, you know, just really um, a lot of other expenses, especially at, you know, in times of inflation. Um, so people are figuring out, like, you know, if I go to the primary care doctor in the fee-for-service system and I have a high deductible, I might be paying $200, $300 anyway for kind of the, the exam and the tests and everything that's going to happen there. And I don't know what that's going to be. And so that discourages people from engaging with maybe the benefits they do have. But with a direct primary care doctor, you know how much you pay monthly. So it's a transparent upfront fee. It's not going to be a surprise. And you get kind of this really great service and great experience. So that's really interesting, Beth, because I actually hadn't thought about that. And thanks for kind of, you know, shining a light on like my, my blind spot there, right? Because right, I live, I've lived in Massachusetts for my entire adult life and I've only experienced it. Are there certain areas of the country or certain parts, you know, I guess areas control with the right thing I'm looking for where Direct primary care is more popular? Is it in more rural areas? Is it center of the country? How do I think about that? There's now direct primary care in every state in America, but we do see it in areas where historically there hasn't been as much insurance coverage. So where there are more market solutions for people without insurance coverage in the healthcare space, in the South, in the Midwest, um, and in central areas of the country, but we see it exploding in a lot of different places. In fact, you know, there's a great community of DPCs around Boston. And that was really shocking to me coming from the, the Boston healthcare system and then starting to work in Hint to, to know that. And they're popping up all the time. So we're also seeing it become really popular in, in states that do have, have really good insurance coverage. And I think that's because the model is so strong because ultimately, yes, this is a payment model, but from a healthcare delivery standpoint, this is a care model. And this is a different experience than people have that have been having, um, you know, having a really hard time getting in to see doctors, having short appointments, not being able to get all their stuff taken care of, being referred to a specialist right away and having to go through a, a PCP first. So uh, people like the model and think somewhat the payment side is, is, you know, secondary to the experience. That's interesting. And you keep coming back to this point around uninsured, which I think is a really interesting point, right? So according to the Congressional Research Service, there are roughly 28 million people in this country who are uninsured. 
And that's about 8.6% of the U.S. population, according to this lovely data sheet I have in front of me from the Congress. And so one of the problems having – I worked in insurance for four years at Aetna. I know you worked at Humana, I believe. I worked at Humana and Tufts Health Plan as well. Right. So you you also have the insurance background. And I remember back in my days at Aetna, we was like, how do we help address the uninsured market? How do we tap that in? And you've mentioned several times here that direct primary care might be a way to get coverage to those people who are uninsured. Is that a core part, you think, of the DPC model? Well, I think, you know, like we talked about before, DPC is not a substitute for insurance. It is really focused on the primary care services. So I think it's a complement to, you know, maybe policies that can be cheaper for people, but have higher out-of-pocket costs. Um, so something that can can pair with those so that it doesn't feel like you don't have any coverage when you have these very high out-of-pocket cost plans. I think it's better than nothing if you have nothing, but it isn't, it's not a substitute for insurance. You you have to have something to cover those those really big expenses as well. Right, but it definitely has to be better than nothing at all because I think we all know announcer prevention is worth a pound of cure. And as you read all the healthcare studies, people who are engaged in primary care are over a long period of time healthier because you catch something before it becomes chronic. You catch something before it becomes critical and it's always cheaper and less expensive to treat that uh, less the area they're going to catch it earlier. And direct primary care potentially is an opportunity to keep some of those people who are uninsured from winding up in a hospital where ultimately they're going to get taken care of because we have that obligation as a society here in the United States. And then we simply absorb that cost somewhere into the healthcare system. This could theoretically be a way to cut some of that cost out of the healthcare system. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think it's a great point. Yeah, I, I was thinking that, you know, when you're talking to or pitching, or maybe not you directly, but the the providers that are providing DPC, when they sort of pitch these services to employers, that could be a big part of the message. Is that when you look at, you know, how this is, how that network is growing, you said you guys uh, have your, your provider network, when they are going out to work with employers to try to convince them, hey, this is a good add-on, uh, are, there, are there ways that you have tracked outcomes or whether it be economic or or health outcomes for the patients that go through DPC care to, to sort of prove out, hey, this is the proof in the pudding of why you should move uh, or, or add this as one of your benefits? Yeah, absolutely. The cost piece is so important, especially because like we talked about, you know, employers may be used to spending 20 or $30 per member per month on primary care. And with direct primary care, you're talking about an expensive maybe 60 to $80 uh, PM, PM. So you're doubling or tripling what you're spending in primary care. But overall, as a, a percent of kind of the total health care dollar, it's still pretty small. And what we've seen, um, there's actually a study that came out a couple of years ago that it was an independent study between Milliman and the Society of Actuaries that showed that at a certain price point, kind of the average price point, DPC is pretty cost neutral because it does reduce even in the very short term uh, ER visits, urgent care visits, and unnecessary specialist visits. I think one of the really cool things about DPC is that it allows, it gives primary care doctors time to practice in the full scope of their practice. So they can take care of more things that otherwise they'd be sending to specialists just because they don't have time to care for it. 
Um, and then I think what you're talking about in the longer term of having really strong primary care and working on healthcare outcomes, helping, you know, reduce those like hospitalizations because of uh, acute episodes of chronic diseases is absolutely on point. Those can be harder to measure because you're always measuring, trying to measure what isn't happening. Um, so you need really strong claims data sets over multiple years in kind of a pre-post or a matched group to to detect those. Yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of where I was thinking in terms of outcomes, how to track and, and really look at what the outcomes for patients that are within a DPC model, because if there are no claims being generated and you know, that data is, you know, there's a ton of that data out there, a ton of tons of claims data to go map out what patients are getting diagnosed with, what tests are then included, and then what the overall cost model might be. So not having that for patients that go through DPC, I think it does, it gives a big blind spot to the research side of things to try to figure out, you know, what might be happening. And it might be, you know, an absence of evidence situation where you're, you're trying to reverse engineer what, what might be coming out of the, the claims model if you can, if you do get information on where DPC may be growing in a certain area. Yeah, I think that typically, you know, there's only so much that happens in the primary care office. So if you have the rest of the claims data set, you can absolutely see what's happening, you know, how are how is specialty trending? Are you seeing decreases in utilization there? How is your um, ER usage, your urgent care, your hospitalization trending? So the overall claims data will paint a picture. And then what uh, several of our larger clients and what Hint Connect is doing is taking data from the EMR as encounter data instead of claims data. So if you think about what claims data is, it's a report on what happened during an encounter. You can get most of that minus exactly a CPT code from the encounter data um, through the back end of the EMR. You can see you know, when people were seen, what they were seen for, what the diagnosis codes are, what medications were prescribed. And that paints a really robust picture that Otherwise, you'd be looking at through claims data. For sure. Uh, in terms of uh, the methods of, of extracting data from EHR is definitely a little tougher, but point taken, no question. In terms of HintOS, do you guys are the data that's recorded within your system, is it more like a, an EMR or EHR system that a hospital would have, but it does have you know, patient histories and, and details like that, or is it much more in the encounter data, or is it much more along the lines of the eligibility and, and management of the payment systems? It's more along the lines of the eligibility and financial data. We do integrate with EMRs, so we are not recording that ourselves, but we have that, those integrations there to pass data back and forth. So, Beth, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about something, something you said earlier. You said that the patients, the doctors seem to have smaller patient panels. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Typically, you're seeing DPC's target patient panel at about 600 patients. And what's the typical patient panel for someone who has a fee-for-service? They say 2,000 to 3,000. So you're talking almost a, you know 25% of that total population, right? That's right, right. yeah. And so, you know, not to put you on the spot or anything here, but, you know, you've got, we have a physician shortage in this country, right? I mean, even some of your own data, I think I saw anywhere between 18,000 and 48,000 primary care physician shortage by 2034. Wouldn't yeah. you say that DPC is taking physicians out of circulation? No, I love this question. I'm so glad that you asked it because 
what I see, so what I saw when I was working on health plans and what I see today talking to doctors practicing in the fee-for-service system is that we are losing doctors to other careers, to tech companies, to administrative positions, because the current system is totally unsustainable. To bring yourself and your expertise and your empathy and your problem-solving skills every single day, all day long, in seven-minute chunks to every single patient is burning doctors out. And I, you know, I have seen, I saw so much turnover when I was working with primary care doctors in Massachusetts. I'd go back, it'd be, you know, a different doctor every year who is trying to manage the risk systems. And so I think that what we really need to think about is attracting more people into becoming primary care clinicians. And that includes doctors and includes nurse practitioners and PAs of the whole spectrum. And we're not going to do that unless we paint it being a good quality of life, unless we, you know, can show the reason that you get into this is to take care of people. You don't become a doctor and spend so much money and time doing it because you're, you know, in it for especially a primary doctor for any other reason than that you really want to help people's lives. And we're not giving clinicians the opportunity to do that right now in the system we have that in. So I don't think that, you know, if you if you did the math and you said if every primary care doctor took a third of the lives that they're seeing now, or, you know, even a quarter of it, is that going to help the shortage? No. But I, I think that that's a, a lens kind of direct primary care isn't the problem. I think it's a solution to that. And I think we need to open up the field to have to license and credential more primary care doctors to attract more people into being NPs and PAs. Um, and if we can show them like this is sustainable, it will earn you a good living. You like the rest of us, you want, you know, doctors deserve work-life balance too. Doctors have families too. There's so much data that shows that um, female doctors put off having families, suffer from infertility, you know, family system structure, physician suicide is a real problem. Uh, it, there's so much wrong about the way that we treat the carers in our society and um, a model that's more humane, I think it can can only help and can only get more people to want to go into the field. So that really ties in with uh, the staffing episode we did a while back in terms of the burnout doctors are feelings, uh, feeling up and down the chain, right, from NPs all the way up through, you know, specialists with primary care included. So when we they were, we were talking about ways in which we could sort of save the, the physicians to stay in the market. And it, it was a lot about that, like keeping people close, giving them a better quality of life. And so it, it's really interesting to hear a solution because we walked out of that episode feeling a little bit like, uh-oh, we, we've got a problem yeah. because everybody is burnt out and we have a very small number of physicians filling the top of the funnel to be the, you know, the next 10, 20 years of, of, uh, carers, carers and providers. And so to have an option to show that there is, you know, something that might be a little bit more, um, work-life balance, so to speak, uh, is nice to hear. Definitely. Uh, getting more people to get through college and, and join in is, is important too, but at least that there is a, uh, a, an option out there that is not the same as just burn out until you're or work until you're burned out. And, you know, the interesting thing about direct primary care is people do it differently. We have, I talk to people who have 300 people on their panel and they like that because, you know, other, if they were working in a 
an office job, they might be working 30 hours a week and that's what they want because they want time with their kids or they're taking care of an elderly parent or that's just the way they want to live their lives. And so, you know, DPCs can index on to how many or how few patients they want. Um, we also have really, really advanced direct primary care clinics who are working in, um, you know, doctor mid-level teams and they're seeing 800 patients per clinician. And they're really kind of more in what you would consider a traditional advanced practice model in the fee-for-service. So it, it runs the gamut, but I completely agree with you. We have to attract people to the field. Just so for our listeners out there to kind of give a framework of reference to this, right? So DPC, I think you said it is that somewhere in one of the white papers. Just everybody knows Hintel did write like this great white paper called Trends in Direct Primary Care that Todd and I both read before showing up here today. So we have all of our data Thank at you. our fingertips, right? Uh, and and you cited a stat that said DPC has grown by about 240% between 2017 and 2021. When I reverse engineered that math, I came up with roughly about 540,000 people in the United States today who have direct primary care subscription, which is roughly 0.2% of the population. What's a still pretty small number, right? 0.2% of the population. What's it going to take to get DPC to over a million people or even, you know, to 1% of the U.S. population? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Our data indicates that we might be over a million now. It's really, really hard to tell because we only have the patients who are being managed through our software. There's other software out there. There's doctors who are doing this on paper and in Microsoft Excel and managing their patients that way. But I think that good ideas spread fast. And I think that Americans really love to have kind of the best experience and buy the best thing. And if you're, you know, if you're sitting there and you're using your BlackBerry and, um, you know, next to you, Todd has his iPhone and you look over and you say, what, what are you using there? That actually looks really cool. You know, this old thing that I have doesn't work very well. It's kind of falling apart. I'm not happy with it. And he tells you, you know, this is an iPhone. You can buy it. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's a great uh, experience, you know, I think good ideas spread and we see DPC really spreading in pockets in the, in communities and in states, because I think that once people are exposed to it, they ask, how can I get that? You know, why don't I have that? Why isn't that available to me? And so we hope that it spread, you know, it's been spreading organically. I think it's definitely gotten a lot more press, um, especially with the one medical Amazon acquisition particularly because One Medical had just uh, acquired a DPC company out of Colorado. Um, so they're actually offering a DPC model. So we think that the more people who hear about DPC, uh, the better, because it's just, I think it makes sense to people, um, you know, having that family doctor, having someone to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. So you're talking to somebody who still longs for his BlackBerry keyboard, but I hear your point nonetheless. <laughs> the click is very satisfying. The click was so. very satisfying. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why Apple actually tried to mimic it. That's probably a podcast topic for a different day. <laughs> I am glad that you brought up One Medical because when Amazon bought One Medical, who you know had previously bought Iora, which is one of the very first DPC providers for Medicare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It made a lot of news. And Amazon spent like $3 billion, $3.1 billion for this. So my question to you here as we get to the end of our podcast is why? 
Paul, I'm very flattered that you think I would know the answer to that. <laughs> you don't have Jeff on on speed dial? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I did, I probably wouldn't be, be talking to you guys. But, Thanks. <laughs> um, no. So I think Amazon is really, one thing they're really, really good at is understanding what people want. They spend a lot of time and money researching of what people want and what they're going to buy. And I think they ha- they see One Medical and, I, you know, personal experience. I was a One Medical patient for a while and it was a great experience. I had, uh, it was a, it was easy to schedule. You could see, I could see my doctor quickly. She had a little bit more time for me than a typical fee for service. Um, they had a great virtual care component. So those are all things that we see in direct primary care and that people love about DPC and I think people love about One Medical. So I hope that Amazon can keep the good parts of One Medical and make that available to more people. But who knows? Who knows what what, what Amazon is thinking? We'll find out. I have my we'll find theory. out. I, I, yeah. I, we are definitely heading towards a discussion of Amazon and healthcare podcast, Todd. It's just I coming. Wait. I can't wait. It's coming. So- Beth, thank you. This has been really educational. I feel like I have learned so much more about direct primary care. Thanks for teaching us. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome, Justin. It was really great talking to you guys. And, um, you know, I hope that if you need a DPC, I can can let you know who is in your area. And, um, you know, hopefully I'll be coming back to you in a few years and you could say, you know, we're over a million now for sure. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's really catching on. So, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, let's hope it's not a few years before you get two million. I'm like at like six months, right? Come on. Sure. Um. Yeah. <laughs> February, February next year. Book it. There you I'm, go. I'm available. Awesome, Todd. As always, thanks for joining me, my friend. Thank you. Absolutely. For all the listeners out there, thanks for listening to Definitively Speaking, a Definitive Healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Anthony Gentile from Kate and Direct, a recruiting firm focused exclusively on the healthcare industry. Anthony will share his insights on the new ways that hospitals need to brand themselves to attract top talent. Everything from nurses to doctors to executives and staff at all levels. Given the ongoing war for talent in the healthcare industry, I expect this conversation to be full of the proverbial must-do for everyone hiring out there in healthcare. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care and please stay healthy.